And spiritually, Jesus talks a lot uh, about hope, uh, joy, goodness, and peace. However, you know, all these things are not just um, emotions we can merely pray into existence in our lives, right? So from, from a psychological perspective, uh, where are these emotions formed? And, and why is understanding where and how they're formed important for living into healthier emotions in our life? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Trip Hawthorne, Cindy Foldenlore, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary. A historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Nicole Zasowski. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's authored several books, including From Lost to Found. Nicole, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you so much, Andy. Uh, so, Nicole, uh, uh, how are things uh, in, in your line of work these days? Uh, I imagine with therapy and the pandemic, uh, you've had a, maybe a few more clients than you've had in years past? Yes. I mean, I've, I've been pretty full for a while, but um, the demand is... Sadly, uh, sadly, and also I'm, I'm hopeful that so many people are reaching out and recognizing uh, ways in which they'd like to grow. I think, you know, certainly the pandemic has caused new anxieties and, and um, new challenges, but I also think it's held up the mirror to struggles that we've been dealing with for a long time and maybe hadn't either recognized or been willing to work on. And so 
I'm actually really hopeful that so many people are reaching out um, for, for counseling and to work through those things. It could be what I'm dealing with in my life or just uh, happens to be the opportunities that are coming our way. But we seem to have had a lot of therapists and counselors on the podcast over the last six months. Um, wow. You know, and I, I love talking to them about how the dynamics of their work has changed as a result of this pandemic. Yes, no, it's definitely uh, been interesting. What's What's been most fascinating to me is we've all confronted something that we cannot change. And when you confront something you can't change, there's such an opportunity for it to change us um, if we're willing to accept that invitation. Um, I think when we don't, it creates a lot of frustration and anger when we keep trying to control the thing. Um, but if we accept that invitation to let it grow and change us, I think it can be really beautiful. So looking ahead, as we're kind of at this stage where we feel like we're kind of getting past the pandemic at this point, oh, um, maybe, you know, maybe. <laughs> maybe, I don't know. So I was reading an article yesterday that was like, this is America's chance to see if they can do the right thing, you know? Um, you know, how do you, how do you imagine that things will, you know, uh, how, how you will approach your work? You know, I, I know like a lot of folks, uh, we've had on and some friends of mine that are in your line of work, uh, they're not sure if they're ever going to go back to many in-person, uh, mm -hmm. sessions, but more virtual and then trying to navigate the virtual challenge. We had, we had a guest on recently that was talking about, you know, when he's counseling a couple, they have a tendency to one to lean in when they're talking, but you know, he, his line of work is to read the facial expressions and, and physical responses from the spouse as the other person is talking, you know? So mm -hmm. uh, what do you imagine things will look like for you in, in the coming years? You know, this could just be me being an old soul. I, I really love the in-person interaction on, on the one hand, I've been really grateful. First of all, that we've been able to continue through the gift of technology in the midst of, especially early on, not being able to meet in person um, when it, when it is safe and, and a good idea to do so. I definitely prefer uh, the ability to meet in person because of what you're saying so much of communication is nonverbal, I think 70%. And so, yes, you can see a little bit of that on a screen, but if there's a, a rupture in the technology connection or if, if the angle isn't quite right or not including multiple people in the frame, if you're seeing a couple or a family, it can be harder to catch some of those nuances and, and know what avenues to pursue therapeutically. So I love um, the heightened emotion of in-person. I've also um, started to see some anxiety around re-entering in-person conversations, which makes me sad. And I fear that if we keep giving into that out of convenience or fear or whatever it might be, that in-person, you know, eye contact and face-to-face um, -face conversations and, um, you know, any kind of interaction that we might have when we're sitting with somebody, I, I fear that that uh, will start to become more uncomfortable than than it should. Yeah, it is. It is fascinating. You know, we've, for many of us who actually followed the guidelines, um, we haven't been around folks much mm -hmm. over the last two years and learning, relearning social cues and learning how to be around each other. 
Well, it's fascinating. Um, we're doing a good bit of work around organizational psychology for my doctoral work. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we, we are social creatures and there's something physiological and psychological that happens in uh, presence and how much of our bodies and our minds have been missing that without realizing it. And that just doesn't include it, obviously extroverted people, but introverted people. But uh, so, yeah, it, I think it's a, a fascinating social experiment to see what is going to happen in the next two years. You know, it took us two years to form these habits. How long is it going to take us to reform new habits around being around each other? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think just paying attention to how we're feeling about ourselves and how we're feeling about relationships will be good clues as to how we're experiencing um, those in-person interactions. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, you have a new book, uh, What If It's Wonderful? You're inviting readers to examine our capacity for joy and courage in the face of disappointment. You wrote, I don't want to look back on my life, my beautiful, wonderful, filled, God-given life, and realize that I've mostly missed it while I was busy preparing for the worst. Uh, walk us through the, the conception of this book. Yes. So, uh, you know, this book is about finding the courage to celebrate. And some people assume that that comes naturally to me or that it was born out of a season of joy. It was actually born out of a season that could largely be characterized by change and loss. Um, I had a lot of personal loss in, in my story that's outlined in, in From Lost to Found, my first book, and in this one. Um, and when you walk through something painful, whether it's an event or a betrayal or um, a season that has a lot of chronic loss, you know, there's the loss itself, the, the thing that happened, and then there's the cost. And the cost is the impact, the message that we're tempted to believe about our identity and sense of safety. And what took me a really long time to realize is that part of the cost for me was that I, as I started to encounter joy and more good news and more breakthrough, I realized that my joy was accompanied by a lot of fear. I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop. I kept my expectations really low. I think, you know, most people don't realize that joy is actually the most vulnerable feeling that we feel because when you hold something, it automatically is accompanied by the possibility of loss or disappointment or even devastation. And so it was easier not to hold something like joy at all than it was to hold something that might break. And so I woke up one morning and just realized uh, I don't know how it became clear to me. There was no watershed moment, but I suddenly realized that a lot of the loss I was experiencing was not just the thing itself, but um, my refusal to embrace the joy that was right in front of me. And I thought, gosh, I don't want to miss my beautiful God-given life because I am so busy preparing for the worst. So you're looking at some pretty hefty emotions, uh, such as shame, sadness, and grief. And yet, in all of this, we need to recognize that these are not human-created emotions, but God-given ones. Um, wh why do you think we were created to feel these big feels? Hmm, that's such a good question. I think, 
you know, we're, we're human to, to be a feeling person is not to be a necessarily an overly sensitive person, but to be a human being who is paying attention to a broken world. And I think, you know, the brokenness of the world was certainly not God's original design. Um, obviously he knew that would happen and had a plan to rescue and reconcile us back to himself. But, um, I, I, you know, the brokenness of this life in this world continues. And so to be human, um, and to have, to have feelings is just to be a person who's paying attention. Um, and God designed us, um, as feeling people. And, and I think the invitation of, especially of those difficult feelings, but an argument I make in, in my new book, what if it's wonderful also our positive emotions, um, is these are invitations to connect with him. So they make us aware of our need for him. They make us aware that what is dark today is not going to be dark forever. And there's, uh, he offers a hope on the, on the horizon and in our present moment that um, can't be replaced, uh, that he is the answer to those longings that we experience. And so in the context of a broken world, I think it's to draw us closer to him. You know, these emotions are God-given. Is, is there a healthy way to feel shame, for example? Hmm. Um, you know, I think, I actually think that I, the way that I look at shame is more of a coping behavior than a feeling. I think we can feel ashamed, but, but shame is actually a, I, I argue it's a behavior that we engage in, um, in reaction to our pain. So it's actually speaking lying words to ourselves and entering into agreement with lies of the enemy, I would say, um, and, and, being unkind to ourselves and, and speaking lying words about our value. And so that I don't think is from God. Um, I think he created us as emotional beings, but a lot of the feelings that we feel are also lies that we are tempted to believe at our, about ourselves that are not true and that he has not created us to feel. Yeah. So like, uh, we're, we're created with the capacity for anger. Right. But, you know, the choice of what we do with that anger is, is certainly a learned or impulsive trait that we might have. Um, you know, I've always been a, a glass half full kind of person, though I'm, I'm highly critical mainly of myself and hoping to improve myself and my work. <laughs> and, and yet psychologically and emotionally and temperamentally, um, are some of us more prone to pessimism than others? Or are we genetically disposed to happiness and sadness? You know, for most of us, um, the brain, you know, left on neutral leans negative. I think you can find some uh, ex examples and exceptions out there um, that, that lean toward joy. But by and large, when we, if we do nothing, if we, if we don't do anything to practice celebration or cultivate joy, left on neutral, the brain leans negative. And this is for a few different reasons. Um, the, the first, um, 
and this isn't an exhaustive list, but there's a few dynamics going on in the brain that were helpful for me to understand when I thought about this. The first is the hedonic treadmill. And that's just a phenomenon going on in the brain that basically means our brain rapidly adapts to joy. So when we experience a thrill of excitement or the gift that could make us want for nothing else, or so we thought, um, very quickly our brain adjusts to that joy and that joy fades into the background. Our brains are also stickier with painful input than they are with joyful input. And our brains are efficient. They are only going to hang on to what they think they need. And so most of the time, those things that they think they need are the bigger and more painful experiences, things that they think they're going to need to worry about. Um, And then also, we have this tendency to tell our joy how it can be improved upon. So if you picture giving a presentation, for example, and you're standing up in the front of the room, you feel great about your delivery, you're connecting with your audience, you see a lot of smiles and nods, and you finish and maybe on your way back to your seat, you receive a few compliments, and then you sit down and all of a sudden there's a moment of satisfaction and then you start thinking, oh, it would have been better if I had shared this story. Or a lot of people look like they were connecting, but not everyone. Or they said I was a good speaker, but they didn't say I was a great speaker. We start telling our joy how it can be improved upon. And so to answer your question, I am certain personality has a role in this. God created us all differently um, and uniquely. And so I, I am sure that we don't all arrive at the same place on this. Um, and part of our experienced joy in the world, our experienced happiness is this genetic set point. Like some of us are just a little bit higher in our natural levels of joy than others. Um, but a lot of it has to do with, uh, life experiences and, and also the way that we engage with those life experiences and the discipline of celebration really shapes how we feel about this. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. 
These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Spiritually, Jesus talks a lot uh, about hope, uh, joy, goodness, and peace. However, you know, all these things are not just um, emotions we can merely pray into existence in our lives, right? So from, from a psychological perspective, uh, where are these emotions formed and, and why is understanding where and how they're formed important for um, living into healthier emotions in our life? Yeah, that's such a good question um, because I, you know, certainly as human beings paying attention, we are going to experience, you know, spontaneous feeling and reaction to what's playing out in front of us. But in terms of a lot of what the list you mentioned, hope, peace, joy, I think a lot of us are stuck in this idea that, you know, I just don't feel it. As a counselor, trying to help someone move to a new place emotionally, that's probably the the pushback I get the most often is, I believe it, but I just don't feel it. And there's bad news and good news with that. The bad news is it is so much more fun and so much easier when we can do something because we feel like it. I understand the desire for that to be the case. And it is personally one of my least favorite things about the brain that feelings follow actions. Actions don't follow feelings most of the time. So there's those rare exceptions where our feeling kind of propels us into action, but most of the time the feeling follows the action. And what that means is that we just need to practice Um, new rhythms, such as the rhythm of celebration and the practice of celebration in order to get to those places of peace and joy and hope. The, The good news about that is this is so much more empowering than simply having to wait for the realization of a dream or the achievement of a goal or some sort of shift in circumstance that would allow us to feel those feelings that there's some actually a lot that we can do about this and a lot of discipline that's and practices that we can um, put into our rhythms to uh, start to cultivate more peace and joy in our lives. Let's uh, take a closer look at, at joy. You wrote that current psychological research supports the claim that true joy can mingle with sadness and includes, but is not limited to the emotional experience of, of happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I would think for the average person, the, the deep understanding of their uh, emotional well-being and the complexity of their emotions um, may be a bit foreign. 
So mm-hmm. what is the best ways to equip oneself to kind of begin to understand the complexity of, of what they are feeling? Yes. So um, just for some context, I practice a model called restoration therapy. And that model would say that our pain comes from two different directions, either a violation of love, which speaks to our identity, or a violation of trust, which which speaks to our safety. And so a more helpful question, because you're absolutely right, we don't typically, most of us in our everyday lives don't use a huge emotional vocabulary. It's just not how we speak. And therefore, for not very many of us, it's it's not how we think. So um, a helpful question rather than how am I feeling, because that is so broad and most of us are tempted to answer a question like that with not good or bad <laughs> or fine. Um, rather than, than that being the question, a helpful, a more helpful question is either uh, how am I feeling about myself right now or how am I feeling about the situation or the relationship? Um, and those will speak to our identity and our sense of safety. So identity feelings, um, obviously this isn't an exhaustive list, but might include not good enough, uh, worthless, unloved, uh, inadequate. On the safety side, we might have helpless, powerless, unable to measure up to expectations or alone. Um, Those are just a couple of examples. You know, you, and you use this terminology here. I, ha- I had a mentor who, who talked uh, in leadership training around expanding our emotional vocabulary. You know, why is that so important for understanding how we feel and how we perceive others feeling around us? Mm. It, it is so important to understand how you feel and, and pushback I often get on this, um, and maybe you do too, is just you know, I don't really want to dwell in the negative or I don't want to dwell on the past um, as we start to explore how our stories have shaped the kind of pain we feel because you and I could go through the exact same thing tomorrow and I might feel one way and you might feel another based on where we're sensitive, what the, based on the stories that we have lived up to that point that have shaped our pain. Um but just being able to, to specifically identify what that feeling is, is so important and definitely um, a critical piece of healing because if we don't know what pain we're speaking to, we can't know what truth to claim in response to it. So a lot of, a lot of us are going around very well-intentioned and, and somebody might be feeling um, helpless or powerless. And we are trying to encourage them by saying, you are so loved. You are so, so valuable and loved. And is that true about that person? 100%. That is a true statement. But if what they're feeling is powerless or helpless, um, then that truth is not going to really speak to the pain that they're experiencing. And so when we take responsibility, you mentioned earlier that 
we can't necessarily control what we feel, but we are responsible for what we do with those feelings. So when we take responsibility for our feelings, the first step is to A, name it, because we cannot change what we will not name. Um, B, understand what it is that we might be tempted to do in reaction to that feeling. And C, speak truth to that feeling. And, and in order to speak a truth that really resonates, it has to be one that direct, directly addresses that pain. Um, and then finally, uh, D, being able to act on that truth in a healthy and connected way um, versus a, a reactive way. It's hard to be a, an unfinished product in the Christian culture of America, um, yes. in which most people <laughs> associate the church with shame and judgment. Um, and yet you talk about affirmation as a critical role in healthy emotions. You wrote, accepting any affirmation of who we are is often lost in the chasm between pride and shame. Can you take us a little deeper there? Yes. So receiving affirmation, a, a lot of us, first of all, are hesitant to do it because we think it's self-aggrandizing. So, um, and it's extremely vulnerable. So there's a few layers there that make most human beings a little bit hesitant to just receive affirmation without some kind of deflection. Um, and this, first of all, just addressing this idea that receiving affirmation is self-aggrandizing. Um, you know, when we recognize that the gifts that have been stuffed inside us and the opportunities we've been given to use them are God's grace, um, we celebrate freely because we recognize, Hey, this is, this is God's grace and his movement in, in me and in my life. Um, I get to celebrate freely because it's, it's not me. Um, I've actually learned to see my hesitation to celebrate as a sign that I have made it about me, um, which is not how we typically think about celebration. We, we think that the, the celebrating freely can be self-focused and, and that, that is the case with both pride you know, arrogance and, and true self aggrandizing behavior and shame. Um, because we, there's, there's this notion that if I just beat myself up or refuse to own anything loving about myself, um, that that is somehow humble, but that is false humility and both pride and shame have a self focus. And so, being able to receive affirmation freely because we know that what we've been given is a grace, um, whether that's the gifts inside of us or the opportunities and gifts outside of us. Um, we get to, we get to receive that affirmation with humility and just say, thank you. I receive that. But I challenge the listener to just watch themselves and pay attention to how they receive compliments, because a lot of us um, either deflect or we're sarcastic. We might say something like, oh, you're catching me on a good day, or you should ask my spouse what they think, or, or you're just being sweet, instead of just saying, wow, thank you so much. Um, and, and that is the mark 
of, of somebody who knows that they are the recipient of grace. You know, I think of David who, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought in, he was celebrating so exuberantly and uh, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked upon him with disgust because she thought his behavior was so inappropriate. And David isn't, isn't celebrating to draw attention to himself. He recognizes he's been the recipient of grace. And I think our invitation is the same. Yeah. And if you're ever looking for a, a passage around toxic communication within a relationship, that same passage is pretty remarkable to dig deep into. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's like, for oh, another podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we could do a whole podcast series around David, uh, just a complicated guy. Uh, um, you know, our, our world at times feels like uh, being satisfied and having enough is impossible. You know, we're set up to constantly compare our lives to our neighbors, whether it be the ones across the street or, or the digital ones we come across on our social media feed. How much of a deterrent of satisfaction is our culture today and how do we cultivate it in our lives? Mm. Yes, I think uh, this is so, I, I say in my book, um, you know, we talk about comparison so often, like we talk about the fact that we should probably exercise or get more sleep or drink more water. Like everybody knows we should stop doing it. <laughs> and, and yet few among us um, really actively work on fighting this tendency we have to compare. And it's common knowledge, but worth mentioning, it is such a thief of our joy um, and really keeps our eyes uh, cast on, on what's um, going on in somebody else's life and off of the beautiful things that God is doing in our story and the ways that he is calling us to use our gifts for his glory. Um, but something that I talk about around comparison is, you know, this call in, in Romans that Paul gives us to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And as I studied celebration, I really noticed that sadly, especially in the Christian community, um, it seems like we are more inclined to mourn with those who mourn, or we find that easier than we do to celebrate with those who are celebrating. And I think this is especially the case when that celebration steps on the toes of our own dreams, when it feels like what's happening in somebody else's lane is a joy that we would love to have in our lane. And the passage that really just kicked my tail on this, because um, I wanted to understand what it looked like, actually looked like to celebrate with those who are celebrating, is in Deuteronomy 3. And it's, it's the story where, you know, the Israelites have been traveling through the wilderness and Moses has been their leader through the peaks and valleys of that journey. And scripture says they are so close to the promised land that when Moses goes up on this mountain to talk with God, he can actually see that promised land in the distance. And of course we know, even though he's been their leader, because he disobeyed God earlier in that journey, he was not going to be the one to lead God's people into the promised land himself. He was not going to get to enter it. And I love Moses's honesty. He pleads with God one more time. Can I please be the one to lead your people in? And 
it's hard to ignore that, that God's language in this passage is pretty strong. Um, it's an emphatic no. And it's a little bit like a, a conversation you might have with a teenager, like no, and this is the end of the conversation. Uh, we're not talking about this anymore. But what I'm really challenged by is what he tells Moses to do next. He tells Moses to commission Joshua to pour courage and, and prepare him for the journey and, and the gift that he would love to have for himself. And I think that is our biggest fight against comparison is not just finding a way to be okay with other people's joy and okay with their success and accept it, but to actively participate in it by helping them prepare for that dream, joining them in their celebration in an active way. Talk to us about celebration. Um, what is true celebration and why do we need it in our lives from a psychological and physiological standpoint? Hmm. Yes, uh, I think we've narrowed our definition of celebration to be a reaction to good news or a reward for an accomplishment. And I am not suggesting that we stop celebrating those things or diminish those experiences. That is absolutely a worthy part of celebration and it's good and right to celebrate those things. I just fear that we've limited our definition to that experience and we see our joy sitting on the other side of a dream realized or a goal achieved or some sort of shift in our circumstances. And this is incredibly disempowering and not at all the way that scripture talks about celebration. When I, when I studied celebration in the Old Testament, um, all those beautiful feasts and festivals that God's people practiced, one of the things I noticed that was a through line was God's people didn't celebrate when they were in the mood or when they had time to do so or when it made sense or the work was done and they wanted to relax and rest afterwards. They celebrated because it was time to do so. And their celebration was a rhythm of remembering God's goodness and faithfulness in their story and in their hearts, um, and not simply a reaction to good news or a reward for a shift in their circumstances. And, you know, often they may have been in a season of longing for their circumstances to change, but when the celebration came, it was about remembering a God who doesn't change. And, um, his faithfulness to them, regardless of what season they are walking. And so sometimes I, I get the question, maybe is this a book for me right now? If I'm in a season of suffering, I see that it's about celebration and all the more reason. Um, I mean, certainly if you are in a season of joy, pick it up um, and I hope it blesses you. But if you are in a season of suffering, all the more reason to pick this book up because celebration is ultimately a practice that helps us cultivate joy um, and not just a reward for the lucky few. Our guest is Nicole Zasowski. The book is What If It's Wonderful? You can learn more about her work at NicoleZasowski.com. 
Nicole, it's been great talking with you. Uh, thank you for calling us to remember God's faithfulness in both the difficult and delightful moments of our life, finding the courage to celebrate. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Before we wrap up our episode, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK is excited to once again be sponsoring CBF's upcoming General Assembly in Dallas, Texas. Stop by our booth in the exhibit hall. Join us as we honor our 2022 Addie David Award recipient at Baptist Women in Ministries Gathering or attend the workshop being led by Reverend Erica Whitaker, BSK's Associate Director for Institute for Black Studies. We'd love to connect with you at this special event. Learn more about BSK at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 